I'd like to welcome everybody to the second uh, talk on the essential elements of formless practice, also known as, known as the three-legged stool. <clears throat> and last week what we did was sort of talk about all the elements <clears throat> very briefly, and then I thought what we could do is dissect those elements um, spend a little more time on each one, each of the legs of the stool for the next three weeks so that we have a good understanding of what it means uh, to change our orientation to practice. As I mentioned last week, most of us who have spent some time meditating have questioned <clears throat> at one time or another how to continue the practice, how to make it work for us. It often feels like um, an in, a, um, a very effortful, uh, laborious, or can feel laborious in how we engage and bring ourselves back time and time again to uh, the, this moment, making contact with this moment. And I think uh, what we're trying to do is to create the right um, environment or attitude or view so that the practice becomes more effortless in how it is that uh, we receive the practice, how we receive life. And that's really what we're talking about now is changing something more fundamental. If we just try to apply ourselves to the practice, staying in touch with what's going on, what are we giving up? We're just adding something. There's no letting go there. Mostly we're just maintaining ourselves, almost as in a survival mode sometimes, so that we don't get uh, blown over by the wave of emotion or anxiety or whatever we're feeling. We use the moment to ground ourselves in some way out of survival. But the same view, the same way that we are, maintains itself through the duration of that period of contact for that period of mindfulness. Do people resonate with what I'm saying? Or is it just me who <laughs> works that way? <laughs> if it is, I'm <laughs> surprised some of you attend. And so we're trying, to, we're trying to build the basic blocks of practice in ourselves. We've just set for 45 minutes. And I'm sure there was a lot of engagement during that 45 minutes in what you were thinking about things. But there were probably periods of time in which there was some mindfulness going on, in which you were just making contact and on the breath or sensations. And there may have been moments in which that contact was almost effortless. You're just resting your attention on something without a great deal of struggle to maintain that quality of contact. And in those moments, if you bring some clarity to them, you, in that moment, or me, we, are not well-defined. We, we don't have a lot going on. We're not thinking about a lot of things. We're not well-defined. We're sort of, we don't really know what we are, but we're not exactly the way we are now. And then, May all beings be happy. The bell rings. I open my eyes. 
and boom, I'm right back in a relationship with life as if I had never set. Now there will be some residual effects of sitting. I'll feel a little more quiet in myself, a little more peaceful. And I will think, oh, meditation. This is meditation. But I'll carry those qualities within the same view that I had prior to the meditation itself. I will, I'll just think that meditation was about the quietness or the calmness not about the shattering of that view, which was more fundamental to that period of time than the side effects of quietness or calmness that comes out of it. That's why they talk about meditation as some 240 different uh, qualities that are developed, but none of them as being as, as essential as insight. Because insight is the shattering or the movement of one view from one view to another. It's the evolution of one view from one point of view to another in an instant. So the quietness is nice and the calmness is nice and the, all the other things that we gain out of it. I can't name all 240. I can name three. <laughs> but there are lots of things that come out of it. One-pointedness energy, etc. So why is that? Isn't that interesting? I mean, I want to know what's going on here. That's what this whole thing is about. I want to know what this meditation can do for me. Not just as a quality that I can carry through life. Not just being laid back. I mean, that's nice, but what but so what? Then I die laying back. <laughs> or energetic, or focused, or so what? I can play better golf if I have one-pointedness, or I can do my work better, I can listen. To, those are very nice qualities, but there's something missing because we just die in that way, you see? I want, to, I want, I want radical change for myself. I don't want to just go through life adding ornaments to the tree. Now, so I think we have to explore how we are formed out of our culture. If any of you have tuned into the Olympics, especially the opening ceremonies, and saw, or, and, and you haven't, uh, many, maybe some of you haven't, uh, don't have much exposure to another culture, Canada doesn't count. <laughs> And suddenly you open to the uh, opening Olympic ceremonies where Japan was um, presenting their culture to the world. I was taken by that. I felt uh, a deep sense of um, elegance and simplicity and spirituality and how they did everything. Now that's not good or bad. In in comparison to our culture, but if you turn on the halftime of the Super Bowl, you see a very different cultural representation there. Loud bands and fireworks. Now that's what we were raised with, okay? So we have to look at what that has done to us.
And so what I'd like to do as part of this evening is to understand what we're born with, what, how we are set to receive life. That's what a view is, how we're predisposed to engage. And we, I think we have to understand this. I, and again, it's not to make judgments about, it's just to understand the effects of this thing upon us. And I, um, so much of what we are at heart are consumers. That's bred into us from the very beginning. We really see our goals connected to consumerism, to acquisition or gain. Now see it in yourself. Don't, you don't have to wait for me to point it out. So I just want to look at you know, a half dozen uh, different basic philosophies that most of us grow up with and assume, and how those points of view within the view create a certain predisposition to react to our spirituality in that same way. See, it doesn't, these aren't just, these aren't just ways that we are socialized, but they have an impact on how we approach our spiritual lives because we approach them through the same view. Unless we understand that view, we don't understand what we're doing with ourselves. Obviously, spirituality is not the same as we've been, or we would be ecstatically happy all the time. We would have naturally evolved into our spiritual fullness. Somehow the culture seems to have pushed us in a way that's counter to that aliveness within us. And so we have to know those influences. And then when we understand that view thoroughly, it's not that we eliminate it or push it away or get rid of it. It's that we see through it. We are held in relief from it. Now it's like we don't even, there's no distance, no objectivity to it at all. We can't see the forest for the tree. Literally, we live in the water we swim in. We don't even know we're swimming. We think this is the way it is for everybody. So let's look at some of these things. So what are, what are some of the, these are just, I just spent um, some time just thinking about how I look at life. And the first thing that most of us realize from this view is to get what we want out of life. That's the purpose, right? And we live with certain images of success, what it means to be successful. I, you know, when I uh, went off uh, for eight years, right in the peak period of my youth, I was from about age 20, 28 to age 36. I mean, my father, who was born from this view, raised and was thoroughly convinced in its validity, really felt that I was wasting my life. And some, I mean, I had to literally fight those 
reprimands from people I held most dear. And one wonders how, at that age, you have the strength to do that. Maybe at any age. Because the, the way we move and the, the magnetism of, of what we have been raised with is so strong. The images of success. If you cast away eight years of your life, I'm still trying to save enough money so I can retire at some point, but I missed those eight years. And so all those years of building up the, you mean, have you sure heard any of these how to make money <laughs> things on TV? If you miss those eight years, like you've blown it. <laughs> so I missed them. <laughs> and so it's interesting, you know, it's just all the, all, think of your own life, what your parents, everyone has told you about what it means to be successful. That's a view. We live with that. We look out and we judge ourselves in relationship to that standard that we've uh, ingested. The next one I particularly appreciate in myself is I want to assert our influence over life, right? So the first one is to get what we want out of life. The next one is to, you know, self-made. The power of the will. We believe in it, really. We believe in being self-made. In our ability to sort of pull ourselves up and go ahead and make a life for ourselves and stand alone in independence. Lord, we moved from Texas where that view is coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> I remember uh, some of these side stories, you'll have to excuse me, but they just come to my thinking. So I, I was uh, driving down the freeway of Texas. I'd just gotten there early on, right out of being a monk, actually. Oh. And I was, uh, so uh, this man, I was just driving down, and this man cuts me off like that. So not very mindfully, I went like that. To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he tailed me all the way to my house. Oh. So then I thought, oh my God. So he gets out of his car. I rolled down the window this much. <laughs> it's my brass brave. Thing. He says, boy, I don't know where you're from, he said, because I had Ohio license or Massachusetts license or something. He says, but in Texas, if you do that kind of thing, we meet, and one of us walks away. I said, I'll sit and you walk away. <laughs> but it's that view, you know, that kind of view of independence and self-reliance. And again, it's not, a, it's not a judgment of Texas, but you really feel it when you go there. <laughs> Rodney, what happened? <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> so what about the harmony? What about another view of harmony? What about a different way of looking at that? What about a different perspective? The Chinese and the Taoist, just listen to this perspective, this view. 
Okay, Texas is one view. The true men of old knew no lust for life, no dread of death. Their existence was without gladness, their exit yonder without resistance. Easy come, easy go. They did not forget where from, nor ask where to, nor drive grimly forward, fighting their way through life. They took life as it came, gladly, took death as it came, without care, and went away yonder, yonder. You see, that's a very different view. That's a very different perception. And to be, imagine being raised in that kind of culture. I don't know how many of you have seen Kundan, the movie about the Dalai Lama, but you really get a sense of the Tibetan, the Tibetan people and what they were like and the cultures. And if any of you have been around Tibetans now, you know that there's an extraordinary lightness of heart that is a part of their enculturation. So to understand where we come from in our own view. One of the, um, I think many uh, Westerners are attract to, attracted to yoga, physical hatha yoga, for that very reason. They start out with a sense of, uh, you know, personal exercise or some kind of uh, willful uh, exertion. And then as they move into the philosophy of yoga, which is balance, which is not, is maintaining the stretch, feeling the stretch, relaxing into the stretch, moving that balance between the will and the sense of harmony that comes naturally through that, those different postures. Meditation is very much that balance between making contact and settling back and allowing that contact to show us what it will in terms of display. And I think that's a nice balance to the kind of view that we have, which is very much leaning forward into the will aspect. So just to know that and to, to seek out ways to, to balance that com particular component in our life. And then another um, directive that we live with is hard work will get us there. And I know I picked that one up when I was starting my meditation. I felt very strongly that you know, if I just work hard, put in the effort, um, it will all um, unfold. And uh, actually Krishnamurti said something. He said that the truth will liber liberate you, not your efforts to be free. Not your exertion. The truth will, what you see, the clarity with which you see, that is the liberating factor. I remember, for instance, that uh, I was going to develop samadhi come hell or high water, so I would close myself in a closet and just sit there and just focus my attention on my breath. And, and then, I think that's a beautiful balancing point of point is of metta, because metta is an actual cultivation of samadhi or, or one-pointedness. But it's done, you can't do metta and, and have that kind of grinding, you know, may all beans. It settles you in to that sort of sense of view. And lo and behold, what happens is that your samadhi gets strong. 
out of that self-kindness, out of that generosity, out of that spirit of, of gentleness. It was a very difficult lesson because it took away the sense of control from me. So, so we're just looking at the view again. We're just looking at what we, what we see out of, the, the coloration of our vision. Another one I think that's very persistent in this culture is a feel-good theme. That, you know, our life is about feeling good, about pursuit of happiness, pleasure. And we carry that, certainly carry that into our Dharma practice. You know, if it's troublesome, if it's difficult, something must be wrong with my practice. I must be doing something wrong. We come into a retreat and we feel some of the mental tortures that we can usually run from in our daily lives, like restlessness and self-anger and all the other impatience and frustration and all those. And in retreat, we're given the one directive, the prime directive, uh, to be present with it. And it's torture because we're not used to doing that. We're not used to allowing that kind of displeasure in our life, the unpleasantness. And so, I mean, look at what we built here. And this, we're as close as you can get to a society that rests itself in pleasure. I mean, I can't think of any other time in my life that, uh, you know, we do, we just build things that for greater and greater pleasure. And I don't think that's true. And, other cultures. They have a, a more of a sense of balance than we do in that pleasure-pain scenario. <clears throat> I remember, uh, just as an example again, I went four years as a monk without hot water, never, never taking, not having hot water. I would take a bath once a day in this rainwater with a little scoop. You just water yourself down, soap yourself up, and then rinse off. And after four years, I went to uh, England. And a group of my friends were in this house, and they invited me to come. And uh, they told me I could go up and take a bath. And I couldn't believe, I turned on the hot water, and I went, whoa. I, got, I just couldn't, it couldn't get me out of the bathtub. <laughs> and I couldn't believe people were taking that for granted, that they could have running hot water. It was a... It, it was a very dramatic moment. Uh, and you would think that it just was very dramatic. I mean, just to, just to know hot water, you know, after not having it for so long. See, we don't even realize the pleasure we have. We don't even, we don't even understand that we're accessing this enormous reserve of pleasure, draining much of the, hum the world's resources in our pursuit of it but unwilling or unable to relinquish our need for it. It's an interesting paradox. And then we lecture the world about the climate warming. Okay, so the feel-good thing. Now, the other thing that all of this produces is a value on product on what we produce, on what you produce, not on what you know, not on your wisdom, your understanding, 
but on the products that you produce. So what does a culture that focuses on products uh, really emphasize? Youth, because it's in your youth that you're more productive. Strength, independence, all these things we've been talking about. So it's important to understand that what we do to the elderly. We don't honor the elderly. We're one of the few cultures that don't honor the elderly. Walk through a nursing home. Go take a walk through a nursing home and see how it is that we honor the elderly in this population. Now, some of you may have parents and grandparents in nursing homes, and it's just in the guilt talk. This is a talk in which we just want to see, just want to see what it is that we live with and how it is that we perpetuate those views. Our wise people are not people who have um, wisdom in the spiritual sense, but people who have vast knowledge, people who know a lot, which is another kind of product. The more you know, the more opinions you have, the more responsibilities you take on, the more you're honored in this culture. So we don't really honor the kind of carefree and yet um, a wakefulness that many cultures do, such as the one I just read. Now, another impact of that, and we'll move beyond this, so just, just bear with me for a few more of these. Whatever also the market economy does to us is that it creates a sense of insufficiency. If I tell you that you need this product and you don't have this product, you're insufficient. So every time we turn on the TV, we are impact, we, we receive the message that somehow we are incomplete. That is what drives a market economy or you wouldn't buy something. You need to feel incomplete. So there is the message within our view that I am insufficient. That is where the majority of our unworthiness comes from. That is where our despair and our loneliness and our despondency. I mean, we're hammered from the day we are old enough to hear these messages come in, all of these messages. And finally, but not <coughs> last, but not least, as they say, our relationship to time. I don't know uh, if any of you, uh, I guess I'm one of you. I'm really went to hear uh, um, Needleman. Uh, what's his first name? Jacob, Jacob Needleman uh, over at Elliott Bay. And I had read um, dialogues that he'd had with Krishnamurti um, some years ago. And so I was real interested to, to go over and hear him. So Ellen and I went over and listened to him. And he, gave a, he, has a, he wrote a book on time and he was just talking about reading some excerpts. And um, I was deeply um, touched by his perceptions of time and how 
she really understands that uh, how we use time and that we can't preserve it, but we try to preserve it. We don't want to waste it, wasting time. You know, we make all of these, we rush through our lives in order to get to some time frame of time that will allow us to do something. But when we arrive, we feel deplete from the rushing itself. And because the momentum of our minds carries us through that moment, we're rushing on beyond that moment into the next. So we're always leaning forward throughout our lives. And it's because of our emphasis that we place on hope, the future, and memory, the past. And that this particular strata in which we do so much of our, our dance is really just one thought thin, just a single thin layer of memory. And yet most of our lives, is dwell, we dwell on that just single stream of consciousness that is only, it's very superficial. There's no depth that comes from that simple stream of consciousness. There's no profound realizations that come when we just dance from memory to hope. And yet, we use time. We don't understand. I mean, this is our value. Look at the time. You can see time. Time is part of the view that we create. Now, all of this works against maintaining our practice. All of these things that we talked about, I don't want to go through them all, feel-good theme and the market economy and self-made person and all that is what we come to when we come to our spirituality. Now tell me something. Would you predict somebody who was raised in that to have a difficult time on retreat or an easy time? <laughs> Would you predict somebody who came out of this culture to have a difficult time or an easy or easier time? You see, so much of what it creates the need for an expression of heart for something else. I mean, all of this creates a certain tension and we try to reach through that tension towards some, something that, some indication that life is more than just what we have. So it has its purpose in getting us to that moment when we can pierce the veil and walk through. It develops a readiness in ourselves. But what we do is we don't let it down. We don't let it go. We take it with us into our spiritual development, out of meditation and re-engage ourselves in the same way. But almost every single point I made runs counter to our spiritual development, is antagonistic to our real understanding and wisdom, which is what we seek. I mean, we go into retreats with the top four or five top hits, relationship, money, whatever yours are, you know, the four or five themes. We sit there and maul over those themes and content, content, and, and then all of a sudden, halfway through the retreat, there's some respite, some sense of having some space to that. And my God, you know, we feel happy, we feel content in that moment. And we think, well, we have to go away, get lost into some forest, sit for 20 hours a day to get this kind of respite. 
when it's the view that's switched. And then instead of continuing on or working with that new view, we pick up the old baggage and walk out and think, God, the back, oh my God, I want to, where's my boyfriend? Oh, and this and all, and I got to, we wonder what happened. <laughs> and we won't let the sack down. We have one eye on mindfulness and one eye on what mindfulness will bring to us. <laughs> right? I'm being, I'll, be in, I'll be aware, but what is awareness going to do for me here? I'm feeling a little calm. That's good. That's good. What else? I'm listening a little better. That's great. That's good. See, it's all same view. Same view. All translated, same view. American culture, view, Midwest, Texas, Oklahoma, wherever you're from. <laughs> the meditation is not supportive of that view. It takes us out of that view. It does what it's supposed to do. But it needs our support. It needs our encouragement. It needs our effort, again, <coughs> our energy, to maintain itself. So when you find yourself getting caught up in that, reflect on the qualities of wisdom, of compassion, of joy, of contentment. Pick up a book and read it to reinstill that sense of direction for your view, for the view that you are moving into, not from where you're coming. You've got plenty of reinforcement from where you're coming. Turn on the TV, you got it. Talk to a friend, talk to your father. <laughs> the relationship that we have with our practice is very analogous to the way we die. I have to get your attention somehow. <laughs> if you look at the way someone dies, when they're first given their diagnosis, they think, I'm going to beat this thing. I'm, you know, we would all do that. I'm going to do everything I can to make myself well. I'm going to beat it. It's me against the world. That is pretty much how we get involved in our practice. I'm going to beat this thing. I've got a problem, and I'm going to beat it. We don't realize that we're the problem at that point. And so in our beating it, we're reinducing the problem into the system. We're just creating more problem. It just gets subtler, more subtle. Then, after we realize we can't beat it, that we're going to die, we look for forgiveness. We start working with forgiveness, trying to forgive myself, trying to work with my life so that I can die peacefully. That's analogous in meditation to acceptance, self-acceptance. We begin to understand that we can't beat this thing anymore, that we begin to allow for self-acceptance, for self-appreciation, for self-worth to come in. 
And then, as we go even further in our dying process, what becomes important is relationship, is the meeting that we have, the relationships we have, the contact we have on an ongoing basis. There's much more emphasis on just meeting and just being with, just being, than there ever has been, because I have no time now. There's no hope for me to extend beyond this moment. There's no assurance that there will even be another moment. So in that death, as death approaches, and time ends with death, I settle into just the quality of the contact I am making. And that is really the full swing of practice itself. We have now converted one view completely into the next through that analogy. And we come out with just service, just working, just being together. The view is in place. I work not from my old sense of standards, which has taken amazing strength in order to resist the whole culture's view. And mine, my whole upbringing, the view of my whole upbringing, it's been like a tidal wave. But I do, because I realize that it is finite, that it leads nowhere, that it will take me with all of that baggage to my point of death and then I'll die. And that's what I'll die, with all of the the psychological hardness, and ambition, striving, effort, <coughs> all of that. I see that that has a limitation. It has a value. I un understand its value. It's gotten me through my education. It's gotten me my job. I work effectively. But it's not something that is going to take and open my spiritual heart. It takes something else. It takes a different way of life, a different way of looking. And the question then becomes, can those two ways of life, can those two views coexist? The answer is no. But one view can hold the other. I can see from the spiritual view and allow manifestations from the other and know exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I have to work hard. I have to get this paper done. I have to get it done. I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing that. I'm not immersed in it. I'm not drowning in it. I'm not losing my perspective. I know exactly where I am in relationship to that. And I do it because it needs to be done. I need to take care of my children. I need to get myself through school. Those things I do. But it's contained within a much faster sense of view of what life is than just around this one pursuit. Than just around this. It's not just this. And with the expanse of that, with the territory, with the spaciousness that that brings, I can do the other most effectively and grow spiritually at the same time to fulfillment without missing a beat. Through relationship, through intimacy, through job, through career, through responsibility, through raising children, Nothing is missed, nothing is lacking, because I understand
can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.